Welcome back, everybody, to season three of the Legal Weekly Wine, where we discuss the week's hottest legal topics. This week, to start us off with a big bang on season three at the beginning of the fall is truly this week's hottest legal topic of the Georgia indictments against former President Trump. This is the fourth set of indictments that we've had. These are state indictments versus federal indictments, and we are here to explain what they are, what exactly they mean, and what the future holds. I'm Virginia Tarani. I'm a full-time practicing attorney in Maryland, D.C. and Virginia with Tarani Law, LLC, because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And I am joined by the illustrious Constitution scholar, Dr. John Vile from Middle Tennessee State University. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. All right. So that is our big topic. And I know you and I can be a little bit long winded, but I think it's really important, especially in this case, so we can break down the true meanings. You and I have seen and heard a lot of news reports this week. They are ongoing. But I think the two things that have not been talked about much that I'd love for us to discuss today, in addition to many other things, are first, what exactly is the big deal about electors from Georgia? The actual electors, the real electors versus the fake electors. What does this mean and why is it important? Why would it be a crime? And then I'd like to discuss um, on the, the second part of it why this actually would fit into the RICO statutes. So kind of put them together hand in hand and join it up as to we've heard a lot about RICO, what it means, what it is. But I want to apply it specifically to this case to say I think this is why the RICO statute is being used and why I think it might actually be successful um, if it can be proved. As usual, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And that's the yeah, system that is, we work this in. This is a grand jury indictment, Correct. not a pettit jury decision. Correct. And, and just word to the wise, you know, you know the expression, a good district attorney can indict a ham sandwich. Absolutely. Uh, so, which doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that they try to do that. I mean, Correct. They, they have their own codes of ethics and... In, you know, especially on a high profile case, it frankly mm -hmm. would be very embarrassing to have as many indictments here and then end up with nothing. Yes. So, you know, and that that accounts, I think, in part for why we're almost three years, close to three years into the mm -hmm. Trump administration. And we're, you know, finally getting finally Biden. getting this set of indictments. I, yes, I'm sorry. Right. Biden administration. Right. Away I mean, from the Trump administration. Clearly in reading, this is a 98 page indictment. Yes. Um, and to really slog through it, I, I appreciate the the multiple accounts and, you know, we're even one of them the weighing in on the topics. But to really read through these 98 pages. So just like with the ones that we have with Jack Smith. The detail in here isn't just, okay, he committed a crime or these other people committed crimes. The level of detail is to set the stage of what the overall conspiracy was, what the overall, in this particular case, the um, 
goodness, I'm trying to think of the word and I'm, I have it, enterprise, there we go. The enterprises that they're all engaging in. And it's a step-by-step process of utilizing this actor from here, that actor from there, and putting all of the pieces together of this isn't one thing or two things. It's a series of activities and speeches and comments and letters and emails and phone calls when all put together with all of these different players amounts to allegedly racketeering enterprise and activity. So what I'd love to do is start off because we always, this is happy hour. Um, It's happy hour. We always enjoy our weekly wine with our discussions because frankly, about now we need the wine with our discussions. Um, (laughs) And you should join this. But our trusty bottle of water with Dr. Vile. um, I I switched. (gasps) Are we doing Coke today? Nice. Okay. Coca-Cola, please. Coca-Cola. So even for you, it would be We're not be doing on... Coke, no. <laughs> we, we haven't gone to illicit drugs, but we have at least moved up to caffeinated beverages. Okay. That's how important today is. And for me, I am doing a Black Cherry Blast. Um, it's from the only winery um, with me in Maryland. So a little bit of a picture here. It is it is a stronger alcohol content, so you will not see me drinking more than one glass here today. Um, but I figure since we're having a blast on, and this is quite an alarming topic, that that was appropriate for today. So cheers to happy hour. Grab your own glass of wine or other drink to enjoy the conversation. Here we go. And that is a cherry blast. That is really good. It's actually very much like um, one of my favorite wines called Cherry Wine um, from the Mariah Winery um, and Vineyards that I find in Manassas, Virginia. So that's quite lovely. All right. So I would love to know, since you know everything there is to know about the Constitution and our electoral process, we talked a few weeks ago about Jack Smith's indictments. And we talked about the Electoral College, and we talked about the January 6th hearing and what the purpose of that hearing was. Can you give a quick recap as to, constitutionally speaking, what is supposed to happen at the January 6th hearing and the meeting of Congress? There's some preliminary stages. When you go to vote for president, typically you're actually voting for a list of names for people from his or her party who have pledged to elect them. Um, Each state gets a number of electors based on their total number of members of the House, which is based on population, and then two senators. So every state has a minimum of three electors, including, by the way, a bi-constitutional amendment, the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. So there's a total of 538 electoral votes, 100 for the Senate, 435 for the House, and three for the District of Columbia. To win the presidency, you need to get 270, and all but two states, Nebraska and Maine, if I remember correctly, do a winner-take-all system. Now, that's not required by the Constitution, but it gives the state more clout if they can say, well, we're going to give you all, you know, all our electoral votes, and so most states have gone with that. So what's supposed to happen is that the states are supposed to the, the electors are supposed to assemble in their respective states 
And that's done, by the way, to avoid conspiracy. Um, each state delegation meets separately. They cast their votes. Then those are written down, and then they are sent to the president of the Senate, who happens to be the vice president, and the president in a joint, I'm sorry, the vice president in a joint session of Congress opens the ballots, announces X has all, you know, X votes from the state of Tennessee or Texas or Maryland or whatever it is. And then in the end, you add them up and one person is declared the winner as long as one person has 270 votes or not. If they don't, then, and this hasn't happened in a very long time, uh, but if no one got the 270, then it would go to the House of Representatives who would choose among the top three candidates. Uh, that, by the way, is how, uh, and I think it may have been five candidates then, but that's how John Quincy Adam became, Adams became president. Oh, interesting. Uh, the Jackson, Andrew Jackson, had more votes, uh, but Henry Clay, who was like third or fourth, and I can't remember what Crawford did in that election, but... The short of it was the forces against Jackson sort of combined, uh, and so Quince, John Quincy Adams became president. Now, traditionally, um, the role of the vice president is what we would probably basically could say is ceremonial. Mm-hmm. Um, he has not, to my knowledge, ever exercised independent judgment. Now there's been there there was a time in the 1876 election when Congress had to set up a commission to decide on disputed electoral votes, and and that commission ultimately resulted in uh, in, in the the outcome in that election. But typically, the president simply gets up, reads the votes, and then makes the announcement. So, 1960, the vice president was then Richard M. Nixon. He had the duty the pleasure, whatever, of standing up and saying, John F. Kennedy, who ran against me, is a new president. I didn't and, win. I'm announcing right, somebody else won. Right. In 2000, Al Gore had a very similar experience. Uh, and Al Gore had actually won uh, the popular vote. Um, but nonetheless, uh, partly because of Bush versus Gore, uh, the last state to be decided was Florida, and it made the difference. Uh, and Bush ended up winning the election. So prior to this time, to my knowledge, no vice president has ever thought his duty was any more than, you know, the ring bearer in a wedding. Right. Uh, it's, it's not his job. it on the pillow. Here it is. Right, right, right. <laughs> so pretty much that, you know, or the crown bearer in a, in, in a monarchy. Um, John Eastman, one of Trump's attorneys, apparently with others came up with this idea that you know, well, if we can get if we can get rival, what do we say, slates of electors, uh, we can at least keep anybody from getting 270. Uh, we'll just say they're disputed so they can't count. And then maybe in the meantime, we can, you know, twist enough arms, uh, get enough fake electors or whatever uh, to do the election. So this is, I mean, it, it's pretty fundamental to the electoral system. I mean, it it's how now plenty of people, by the way, criticize the Electoral College. Right. You know, why don't we just go to direct vote? And actually, this election might, you know, if if this becomes the norm, uh, maybe we ought. I mean, maybe maybe it would create less problems than than this system does. Sure. But traditionally, it's actually 
it sort of worked the other way. Usually a person wins a greater electoral number of votes percentage-wise than they do popular vote. And so it makes the election seem a little bit more, you know, solid. Uh, everybody has to recognize the votes and, and whatever. But what what happens here is apparently Trump and his allies got together and attempted to create and, and here's one thing that I don't quite understand mm -hmm. is I don't understand why they didn't accept, I guess maybe they couldn't get them to do it, but you would think what they would have done is take that original set of voters who had been pledged to Trump and have them say, we won. But apparently rather than do that, they actually got other people to say, well, we're, we're going to certify right. that we're electors. Now, one of the problems, though, and that this comes out in this indictment, as in Jack Smith, as I understand it, is there allegations that some of these people said, well, I'll step into the breach. You know, if there's a, if there's a chance that this state's elections were miscounted or votes were not counted or there was fraud, I will gladly sign my name so the proper person will be elected. Right. And some of them apparently did it in good faith with the understanding that your names would only be presented in the case where clear fraud was shown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there was, you know, there's some comparisons between this election and 2000. And yes, I, you know, the, the first time I read this, it's like, OK, would this make could either Gore or Bush have been indicted? And I think the answer is no. So what, because and I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my question is, you know, there's the debate about the hanging chads, right? Oh my goodness. Right. Well, that it, was the Florida case. Yes. Right. So what is truly the fundamental difference of the First Amendment saying, look, I'm disputing these votes. I don't think they're real. I don't think they're right. I'd like them recounted. What's the difference between demanding a recount and what happened with Bush and Gore versus what's happened here, allegedly? Right. Well, I mean, the main difference is in Bush versus Gore, for better or worse, Bush eventually prevailed in the court. The court said, we're going to stop the recount because there's not there's not a fair way you don't have criteria that are distinct enough and clear enough that we know if somebody is fudging the numbers or if, you know, do you count a hanging chat or do you not? Do you count a folded ballot or do you not? Do you count an early ballot or a late ballot, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference is there you went to court and you had a resolution. Hmm. Now, people went to court in this case. They did. Were, I believe close to 70 cases. And ultimately, all of them went against charges of fraud. And in fact, the attorney, I believe none other than Trump's people themselves, four or five weeks before the election, were saying this is going to be the cleanest, fairest election we've ever had. Um, but then if you remember, it was either the night of or the night after the election, Trump gets up and says, we've won. Yes. Uh, and that was quite contrary to the evidence that existed at that time. But you certainly have a right to say, mm -hmm. you know, something fishy is here. I don't understand. And, and, and in Trump's case, remember, he had discouraged people from casting early ballots. Yes, that is and true. So, so what happened is the people who voted early and usually your, your early ballots are not counted till after the others, as strange mm -hmm. as that seems. So in this case, what happened is 
more Trump people went to the polls probably on Election Day uh, than uh, Biden people because a lot of Biden people had been encouraged to vote early. I was going to say early and often, but there doesn't seem to be evidence that they voted often. Mm -hmm. Uh, So your initial count, as often happens, anybody who ever watches election night, they will say, well, you know, we have votes, but they're from Philadelphia and it's heavily Democratic or they're from West Virginia, you know, they're from this little town in Maine and typically they vote Republican. Um, So it really wasn't, you know, now Trump also says, well, he got more votes than he did. the, And apparently he did. Now, one should realize that in 2016, he actually didn't get a majority of the popular vote. Which is funny because uh, it's it's vice versa. Is he actually won the electoral college and not the popular vote? That's in that's his right. Election. Right, and now of course he's claiming that he won both, but as it's gone state by state, court by court, the courts have said no. And you know the predicate of this indictment and the indictment of Jeffrey Clark, they both start out by saying, and I I think I you underline- mean Jack Smith. I'm sorry, I, I do mean There's so many names um, going around. It's okay. But I mean, the first the first sentence of mm-hmm. Willis's indictment, defendant Donald John Trump lost the United States presidential election. Right. Held on November 3rd, 2020. Uh, and went on to say one of the states that he lost was Georgia. Right. But he refused to concede. Not only did he refuse to concede, he apparently tried, you know, and there's pretty good, I mean, again, he's innocent legally till proven guilty, but we've all seen tapes where he says, you know, all I want is, you know, one more vote uh, to get me over the top. I don't particularly hear how you find it, uh, where you find it. That's what I want. Yeah. Uh, And and then the one, one of the ones that was most disturbing to me, if true, was the one to the acting United States Attorney General, allegedly saying, just say that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Right. Um, right. Is another one that was, more, if again, if true, seems alarming, is don't say that it was corrupt because it was corrupt, but just say that it was, and I'll figure, you know, I'll take the rest and, from here. You know, what's fascinating about both these cases, despite what your mother and I taught you, it's not, it's wrong, but it's not illegal to lie. People do it all the time. And in fact, you know, how do you know a lawyer, uh, uh, I was going to say a lawyer, (laughs) a politician is, is lying, you know, well, their lips are moving. moving. Uh, That's, that's, that's what people say probably unfairly. Um, But what this Rico, what Rico does is say, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to get on television and lie to the American people as heinous as that is. It's another thing to call an election official and say, we have evidence that we don't have. Right. Uh, or, you know, why don't you do this? Or why don't you help me in this way, knowing that you have lost the election? And, uh, you know, about, frankly, the only defense, well, no, I would never say only defense, but, you know, your, your one defense as president particularly would be to say, well, I genuinely thought that I did win. Uh, you know, I'm a wishful thinking kind of guy, positive thinking uh, the problem with that is politically, if it's true, it's almost as damning yeah. as lying intentionally, which is you, you mean you're, you know, after all the 
you know, you, your second presidential election, you still can't figure out how it works. Right. And after being how told by how many people, how many judges, how right. many everything that you lost, why would you still right. perpetuate yeah. this this idea that you you have? May I get on a hobby horse here a minute? Because oh. what, what most bo bothers me about what's happening here and this this is taking place among not just Trump, but many of the Republican candidates. What are they saying? They're saying the Justice Department has been weaponized. Right. Well, you know, these jurors are not members of the Justice Department. And Fonnie Willis is a state official. She's not even a federal official. Mm -hmm. And there are all kinds of checks and balances that have been brought into these special counsel and right. Uh, all this other. And it worries me that people are going, I mean, traditionally, Republicans particularly were the party of law and order. Yes. They were the supporters of the FBI and the police and the judicial system. They and were now against like, the defund the police campaigns. Well, right. And they were rightfully opposed to that. Uh, please, you know, there are plenty of abuses among police and, you know, and they do wrong, they would be brought to justice. But, you know, as, as my dad used to say, you know, if, if you're in trouble, you're going to call the police, you're going to call a hippie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was sometime, sometime back. Era. <laughs> <laughs> in, in any event, uh, you know, I, 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 it worries me that it's we're defending a man over institutions mm -hmm. That have and this, you know, this sort of goes with this whole deep state critique. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sort of a defender of the deep state in the sense that if what you mean is we're going to have people in agencies that know the rules very well, right. are well educated, have a lot of experience, we need them. Uh no present, you know. Oh, Woodrow Wilson. I'm doing some writing on him right now. He was <laughs> yes. as educated. Yeah, okay, he was as educated we have as some any history with with Woodrow Wilson and speaking in back and forth. Event, he was as educated about the U.S. Constitution as any any of his predecessors, mm -hmm. except maybe James Madison. Uh, but there was a lot that he didn't know about government. Right, and we need you know these bureaucrats that we fuss about are the bureaucrats who make sure we get our social security checks or make sure there's aid that goes into Hawaii and place, you know, all the, get our mail delivered, uh, all the goods and services that we've accustomed to getting. So, okay. So what I would like to do is in speaking of this being Georgia related, versus mm -hmm. federal related. One of the questions I kept having, and I don't know if anybody else has this thought, but I, I have a suspicion that other people do and will hopefully be thankful to hear some answers on it, is why in the world of all the places, why Fulton County, Georgia? Why is there right. a state proceeding? Why is the jurisdiction Fulton County, Georgia? I have, until I saw this indictment, I had not wrapped my head around why can that Georgia prosecutor, the state prosecutor, bring a case in Fulton County, Georgia? Why is this not D.C.? Why is, you know, I, I understand Jack Smith in D.C. That makes sense to me. But this Georgia case didn't um, until I well, read the 98-page indictment. Right. Well, I mean, they're arguing, I mean, 
this conspiracy, if that's what you want to call it, racketeering enterprise, took place in a variety of states. Correct. And one of the closest in terms of the vote count, I believe it was about 10 to 10 to 11,000 difference was Georgia. So Correct. if you had a choice, you know, you don't want to go to a place where you're losing by a million votes. You just be utter, you know, nobody's going to take it seriously. So here was a state, you know, it's, it's a purple state rather than a red or blue state. So you have a chance that, you know, he could, he could have won there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's fascinating. And, and I guess, I guess it's Fulton County because the capital was Atlanta. That's where the electors would have met. Right. I'm supposing that's what gives the jurisdiction. Now, by the way, Mark Meadows, who seems to have cooperated at the federal level, is trying to get his case moved to, to federal. federal jurisdiction. And Correct. you're, you're going you're to know the jurisdictional issues better than I am on that. But what's what's fascinating about Georgia, two things, and one I think we raised before with a question, but I do now have the answer. Were Trump to be convicted mm-hmm. in in Georgia the president of the United States cannot, no matter who it is, pardon him. Correct, because it's my a understanding state is nobody can pardon him till like five or I believe it's five years, but whatever. Right, and it's I think and, it's after five. It so a federal official cannot pardon. R- right, the state, For a state can, of North, Right, but the it's there. Can only pardon offenses against the United States. Correct. So this is an offense against Georgia. It's federalism, you know. Yeah, Correct. So versus the state of Georgia. So it's the state of Georgia. Yes. Now, Georgia can, but only after five years of serving a sentence and based on the board of parole. It's right. not the governor who allows right. it. Um, right. So that is true. But for me, in going through this indictment with the fine tooth comb, I actually applauded the Fulton County jurisdiction. Because they're bringing in, now they are saying, and I wrote it all down, they're alleging an overall conspiracy, like you said, an overall enterprise and conspiracy. And we're going to come back to RICO in just a second. But they're saying there's a huge conspiracy set up of which Fulton County is a part. But we're part of, there's Georgia, there's like seven states. They're saying interference in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada. Um, So they're saying all of these, and they're citing continuous activity in each of those states. Who's called, who's met, electors that are represented. But in Georgia, what I thought was very well done in this indictment is that it was finally clear to me, okay, we actually have more than just this call to the one person in Georgia, right? There's yeah. the one that it, President Trump is calling the perfect phone call. Reference Um, Yes, Reference But that's not the only thing in this indictment. They're seeing three different dates, December 3rd, December 10th, and December 20th, that those dates in particular, and December 14th is going to be another critical date, that those four different dates culminated in hearings and meetings in Fulton County, Georgia, in which players uh, in this enterprise and in this conspiracy specifically met, had meetings, had hearings in which they took testimony. Which would have been under oath, right? Exactly. 
under right. oath testimony in which they cast ballots, in which right. they made statements. So there's a December 3rd is the Georgia Senate Judiciary Subcommittee meeting. That's the first. Then December 10th is the House Governor Governmental Affairs Committee meeting in Georgia, in Fulton County. And then on the 30th, um, the 30th of December, not the 20th, it's another subcommittee meeting, a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee meeting. And then on the 14th is this Fulton County meeting of the fake electors. So these four different dates where Willis is saying, look, this is how it hits Fulton County. We have jurisdiction because in our state, this enterprise specifically came into our state, into our county, held these meetings, petitioned our governor, governors, our electors, um, our state, legisla state legislators, and they named different ones of them. And let, let me add something. Mm -hmm. Election workers. Yes. And if you remember... One of the most, I thought, <sighs> striking parts Ruby. of the testimony before, right, were, were, you know, this mother and daughter yeah. who all kinds of accusations are being made against them yeah. uh, that are apparently absolutely false and that, you know, they were fearful of leaving their house. And right. by the way, you know, another development that has happened since this was issued is apparently the names and pictures and addresses of these folks are now online. The grand oh of the election right. workers or the grand jurors? No, well the grand jury members. Yeah, and you know, I mean, think about it. I, I I'd probably like to be on a grand jury just because I feel like it was part of history. But you know, this is not some. This is not a walk in the park. No, you know, you listen to hours and hours of maybe very complex testimony, and you know, you hope you you hope you have a DA who's leading you in the right direction, but you, you, you know, you want to keep some lookout to make sure somebody isn't being railroaded and then, you know, to get blamed for issuing right. an indictment. Right. Uh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, and, it's and again, scary. You, you know, if, do we believe in the rule of law? Yeah. We believe in the rule of law when it goes our way, you know, right. John Kennedy said, you know, uh, heads I win, you know, Tales, tales you lose. <laughs> right. But, and, you know, it, it's. And I think that's where we get into the First Amendment issues. And this is what's yes. also happening. And I'm going to parallel it to D.C. Yes. Is what's happening is this huge question of is it a crime or is it a First Amendment right? What are we right. doing? And in D.C., if you'll recall, the judge there had that hearing last week where. Yeah. It was what protective orders do we have? And they also had an issue of what pretrial are we agreeing to? And she was like, you're walking a very thin line. Right. And the question is, is this intimidation? And intimidation of witnesses and obstruction of justice, those are crimes, that's not free Rightly speech. So. They're serious crimes. Right. They're serious yes. crimes. And what the judge in D.C. could rightfully do, who also, by the way, this week has been subject to death threats yes. by a Texas woman who called up, called all sorts of racial slurs and said, you know, we're going to watch out for yourself and your family and your children. We're coming for you. Well, in the meantime, a man has died in Utah for making threats against the president and coming out. 
you know, with, with an AR-15 or whatever it was. Right. And um, so what what's happening is she said, you know, be careful of your statements because I will take extra measures if these types of statements are being said. And he could say, oh, I'm not trying to do it. But there's the implication of the words, especially from someone so influential, to not check his words and to know what they may or may not be saying. So either Georgia, who's still at this point in our broadcast, and maybe by tomorrow on Friday when we actually put it out or however we do it, is... I, I think he's going to surrender next week, but right, bail and bond conditions have not yet been set, but either in this Georgia bail and bond conditions or in DC, he could be subject by a judge to saying, you can't use your, your truth social account. You can't make statements or we're going to jail you because you cannot use your platform to intimidate witnesses. And for this, the most concerning one to me was his own statement on Truth Social on Monday. And this was before the grand jury came down with their indictment. You come after me? No. Well, there's oh, that okay. one, which is also concerning. If you come after me, I'll come after you. Right. But this one was very specific. And imagine, like you're saying, of being in grand jury, imagine being a witness. And this is what's put out to all the country. And you know this that the former president has a huge following. And the former president puts out, quote, I am reading reports that failed former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, will be testifying before the Fulton County grand jury. He shouldn't, end quote. Now, if there is anything close enough to witness intimidation, this would be it. It didn't work. It didn't work. (laughs) And thank goodness it didn't work, right? But it doesn't have to work to be intimidation. And that's what's coming out in this Georgia indictment for poor Ruby is what seems to be laying the foundation is she and other election officials who were presiding in Fulton County were being accused of rigging the election, of switching votes to Biden, of ballot stuffing, of all of these things. They're being accused of these things. Their names are being plastered, especially Ruby. There's testimony by Giuliani in front of the Senate Judiciary Committees on these dates that Ruby was ballot stuffing, that she was doing all these other things. And then there's evidence in the- False allegations. Right, false allegations, what have become known as false allegations. But you're putting her name, you're putting the, the governor, you're putting the lieutenant governor, you're putting all these names out there and you're saying, and people are calling and people are coming by and people are coming by to the neighbor's houses and people right. are like, it seems to be, and this is where I want to go to the RICO act is a lot of people are criticizing using the RICO act. And there are some criticisms. If you want a really nice a bundled prosecution, RICO is not the way to go. It's more complicated. It's complex. It's complicated. You have to prove a lot more. It's not as a nice tiny bow to present to a jury. It is but, complicated. But who's, who, who's the paragon of bringing RICO indictments? Who's, whose whole career was based on that? I don't know. Rudy Giuliani. Oh. That's how he he started out as a DA. Okay. And he used it against organized crimes and all all kinds of 
uh, similar groups. Oh, I didn't. So I didn't the, know oh, that. There's a, there's an amazing irony here. Oh, I didn't course, know that. The, the other, I mean, the other thing I guess most viewers know by now is apparently he can't pay his legal bills. Yeah, I've uh, seen that. Trump has not apparently paid his bills to him, uh, and now has less incentive because if he does, then it will look like it will be further into the conspiracy. Right. So, you know, Trump Trump can go to his supporters and say, you know, help me out here. And that's sort of the tactic, right? Yes. This is, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. I need to use your campaign money to help myself out. Giuliani, to my knowledge, doesn't have that. Right. And I'm not about to create a fund to help him out. <laughs> but, right. But, Pay your own legal bills. Yeah. <laughs> So, so for me, it's, you know, when I think of Rico, we, and, and a lot of us, the, 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 the genesis, the foundation of it is mob bosses, right? Mafia and the mob where you can't get after Jimmy Hoffa by himself. You, you got to go after the organization. And if you can go after the organization, then you can hit the high hitters. You use the lower henchmen to get to the boss, to get to the godfather, to, you know, that sort of thing. And that's how we think of RICO because it's technically for those of you who don't know, RICO actually stands for racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations act. That's what the title is. Um, and there's the federal. And by act. the way, just just so we're clear, mm-hmm. I'm not sure Jimmy Hoffa would qualify. Oh, as am a I saying it wrong? What do you think well, he would be? He, in he was a union leader, and he there. I mean, I don't know the degree to his skill. I think he was convicted of something, but you know, there there you know there are other sort of Godfather types that probably would fit a little bit closer than he would. Perfect. But Thank you. Same general. Same same general principle. Yeah, and so the idea is that they're creating right the. They're so corrupt, these organizations, these gangs, these these mafia, these organizations that are improperly influencing governments, right? That they're entrenching themselves in a city, in a jurisdiction, in a county where they are the rule of law and influencing the rule of law instead of the actual lawmakers. What do we attribute to mafia and mob bosses? We attribute them to bribing public officials, paying them off so they'll look the other way while they do. Exactly. While they do their, you know, we think of alcohol, we think of prostitution, we think of drug, drug running. We think of all of these things or gangs, gangs, which are using hench henchmen, so to speak in the wrong word of going and committing other crimes. But what we're forgetting about is these organizations, the fundamental part of this is to, to run corrupt scheme to undermine the government, to undermine and, and the, the actual law. Right. And, and elections are integral to Democratic Republican government. Exactly. Um, so in my mind, the law fits perfectly. It is an enterprise that is trying, and there's a whole list of— How would you distinguish—this mm-hmm. is a good question for a lawyer. Why do you think Jack Smith used conspiracy continually, whereas she uses racketeering? Do you think that—I mean, there there must be—and, you know, people congratulated Smith on avoiding— yes. The so many of the First Amendment issues, and it looks like she actually has a few more in here. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, 
I mean, their conversation, the, the, the irony is a lot of her, a lot of her facts, it's not, it's not a crime to, to have a phone call. Correct. It's not a crime to do a tweet, but if you can show that they are all directed to some kind of overall conspiracy. Yes. Then, then it no longer, it, it's no longer free, you know. I, I can talk about how much I dislike a certain politician, mm-hmm. but once we start talking about, you know, hiring somebody to shoot him, I'm I'm way out of the the realm of freedom of speech. Exactly, and I think that goes to the two of them together. So let's look at them combined as they both charge conspiracy. Yes. So she has the overall RICO, but she has also alleged conspiracies, right? So there's conspiracy to commit false statements in writings, conspiracy to commit filing false documents, conspiracy to commit forgery. Um, And they each have several common grounds that Jack Smith does. As we talked about last time with Jack Smith's indictments, conspiracy isn't just, you know, committing a crime. Conspiracy is an agreement to commit a crime. Basically. So it's a plot. It's an agreement between two or more parties plus an act in furtherance of right. that agreement. So right. you don't have to commit the actual crime. You don't. Right. Your act in furtherance doesn't even have to be a crime. It just has to be something you've affirmatively done that goes toward implementing and concluding the conspiracy, even if the actual final crime never happens. That's the same as Willis's indictment is she has the same effect, is there's these overall conspiracies between two or more actors, and in this count, I've charged 19 of them, um, and their acts and furtherances. So these phone calls that you're mentioning, it's not a crime to make a phone call. It's not, and she's not saying it is. What she's saying is that that one phone call furthered the conspiracy and the objective to overturn an election. It continued the enterprise of making false and fake electors, of presenting them as true electors when they weren't our state's actual electors. So the difference that she's done is she's gone above that. She's done the conspiracies, but she's added the RICO. And for the state of Georgia, it's a different rule. So it's very similar to the federal rule, but it doesn't have the same statutory constrictions of time. In federal rules, it requires a longer period of time, sometimes months, sometimes years. Georgia doesn't have that. You don't have to be an enterprise conducting a conspiracy or, you know, your activities over the course of months or years. It just is an enterprise. So what she has is she's put together offenses or acts, acts in furtherance of an enterprise that began right before the election. So around October 31st is when she's alleging that this started through January 6th. So her timeline is much shorter and is allowed under the Georgia rule. The Georgia law also allows enterprises to consist of one person. Now, hmm. she doesn't say it's one person. She says right. it's 19 plus unindicted, you know, and, other and, unindicted people. Am I right that in Georgia, if you're convicted under RICO, it's a five-year minimum sentence? It is. It's five to uh, 20 years. Yeah, you know, which is, I don't know if that's 
I don't know that that's more than federal, but I believe it's mandatory in a way that maybe federal, you could plea bargain it or, or whatever. That's also my understanding. I'm not a Georgia attorney, but based on my reading of the law, that does seem to be how it goes. It's a mandatory minimum of five, or at least the statutory constrictions are five to 20 years. Some may be able to be suspended, um, right. but that's how it reads. So what she's done is she's been given through state law an extra count that I don't think Jack Smith had available to him based on the timelines for his rules, um, for the federal rules. But I think she's played this very well because she's used in the racketeering act. It has a list of like 34 different crimes that could be, and most of them, like I said, are like prostitution, drug running, that sort of thing. But specifically government corruption, gambling, bribery, forgery, false statements and writings, impersonating a public officer, perjury, influencing witnesses, tampering with evidence, intimidation or injury of grand or trial jurors or court officials. These are crimes that are specifically said in the Racketeering Act that if you set up an enterprise to affect any of these or commit any of these crimes, then you're guilty of RICO. RICO, however you want to pronounce it, the RICO laws. And I think she's used this beautifully. If she can make it all work, if she can make all those elements of proof to prove that it was a, an election won for Joe Biden instead of Trump, if she can prove that the, the there were fake electors. And a lot of this is based on the December 14th meeting where the fake electors were called in Georgia and they cast their ballots. They presented themselves as fake officers. That's where part of this comes in. And, it, and again, if I can combine this with Smith. Please. It is possible that some of them did not fully understand. You know, Correct. It's possible that the representation they had was that their votes would only be used in the case that fraud or, you know, vote tampering had been proven. Absolutely. So, uh, you can't necessarily say, I mean, some of them, I think, clearly did what they did knowingly. Yeah. But I'm not sure that all of them did. And I'm not saying and, that they did. Yeah. I think the bigger right. idea here is that it's not necessarily those people, but the overall conspiracy to right. get those people. Right. To submit them as fake officers, whether they knew it or not. So it's the 19 who have been charged and they keep referencing in here, the unnamed, you right. know, unindicted, unnamed people. Right. They don't even call them co-conspirators. Right. Whereas they're the, in Smith's indictment, they're the unnamed co-conspirator number yes. one through whatever here. I think the other interesting play that Willis makes and speaking as a former prosecutor, I think she's done well and something different than everybody else, where she said, I'm not doing just Donald Trump. They're right. all coming in. And so, of course, the problem with that is you could potentially have a trial of 19 people. And that's what she once. wants. That's well, what she claims but, she wants to try them all together. It's probably not going to happen. And she may have to wait in line behind Jack Smith. Absolutely. And, and even if she doesn't, the likelihood that all 19 people could hire their attorneys, <laughs> make their case prior to the next presidential election, 
I think is even slim. slimmer than that than that for uh, for Clark. Absolutely. So you know, typically, that's, with, yeah, that's the strategy portion of it. The actual, you know, how it will play out. For right. me, I'm speaking more about the strategy of even indicting 19 people, right. of saying, you know, who's going to really accuse me of being a weapon against Trump. It isn't just against Trump. This is against everyone that I believe had a role to play in our state who came into our state and tried to influence our election, make false claims against our electors, our election officials, and meddled in what we believe we were doing right. Again, all and by the way, allegedly. I think it's likely that the offenses in Arizona were as great as the ones here possibly those in Michigan. And that's what it uh, suggests so, is if you yeah. read through this indictment, you're exactly right. right. The, the, the alleged crimes that are coming out that she doesn't have access to that she right. can't indict through Arizona or Michigan, but they can still be used to prove acts in furtherance of this right. continuing illegal enterprise is that there were acts in, in New Mexico and, or, I mean, in Arizona and Nevada and Michigan and I saw a report that at least several reporters have been contacting the attorney general in, in Arizona saying, hey, what are you going to do about yes. this? And, and, and one they thing, might have know, their own. L- lest what I said earlier sound partisan. One thing that's important to remember is none of these conspiracies, if that's what they were, worked. Correct. And they didn't work. It w- and it wasn't because Joe Biden opposed them. Right. Wasn't because Democrats opposed them. It was because Republicans stood up and said, not in our state. Yeah. You got ready. Yeah. And I I know your time's running out and so is ours. Um, But I appreciate that. And same. We we try to be neutral on here. It's it's hard as a former prosecutor um, and seeing these. It's like, wow, this is this is really damaging. Um, But I'm also a former defense attorney. And as we stated at the beginning, innocent until proven guilty. Um, I love that we do have a system of laws and I'm trusting our judicial process to work. Not everybody does trust that. Um, But I would like to believe that it does um, most And you never time. need a lawyer? And you never need a lawyer till you do. But dang it, please don't call me for this one. Um, <laughs> I am happy to comment all day long um, on the sides, but I would not like to be anyone's attorney for this case. <laughs> Just the commentator. But anyway, so thank you for talking with me more in depth about these um, these indictments as far as what they mean and the electoral process, which, again, I think is important to always go back to. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody. Happy, happy hour. And we will catch you next week for the second episode of season three on the Legal Weekly Wine. I'm Virginia Tarani, and this is Dr. John Vile of Middle Tennessee State University.